Hello and welcome to episode 59 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Eloise Ross. And I'm Anders Furs. And in this episode, we'll be taking a look at Dan Gilroy's Netflix film Velvet Buzzsaw, which reunites him with actors Jake Gyllenhaal and Rene Russo. Christian Markley's 24-hour video project The Clock, which is currently showing at Acme, as well as sharing the Cultural Capital Film Diary. But first, Barry Jenkins' Academy Award-nominated If Beale Street Could Talk. I'm sorry, baby. I didn't mean that to for you. I love you. You know that. I do. And I understand what you're going through because I'm with you. The things that tormented me the most were the very things that connected me with all the people who were alive. If Bill Street Could Talk is the new film from director and screenwriter Barry Jenkins, the man behind 2016 Oscar-winning artistic phenomenon Moonlight. Adapted from the novel written by seminal American author James Baldwin, the film follows Tish Rivers, played by Kiki Lane, who falls in love with her longtime friend Fonnie Hunt, Stephen James. After he is wrongfully arrested for sexual assault and thrown behind bars, she learns that she's pregnant with his child. Alongside her family, she fights to clear his name. All of this is told in a non-linear fashion, with Jenkins taking his time to unfurl the plot at a leisurely pace. The resulting film is both a luscious portrait of a young African-American couple's burgeoning romance and an unwavering indictment of the ubiquitous, structurally endemic racism that is doing its best to determine the course of these lives. Andy, did Bill Street talk to you? Profoundly, yeah. I thought this was incredible. Great question, by the way. Uh, yeah, this is... I, I'm still struck, kind of struggling with this because it connected very deeply. I was reminded of Wang Kar Wai's In the Mood for Love in the way that uh, Jenkins uses colour and the way that he kind of almost seems to cradle the, his characters. There's so much attention to detail that kind of enables him to take a story like this, which I don't think any of us could connect with on a basic level, like none of us have experienced you know, what they experienced in the early 1970s in this film, the main characters. But we can empathise with them really easily. At least I'm not quite sure what you guys think of it yet, but I certainly know that a lot of people who've seen this, um, particularly outside of America, it seems, have really emotionally connected quite strongly with it. Uh, yeah, it spoke to me a lot. I'm still kind of mm. in awe of it. And mm. particularly the way that he uses colours, Nick, Nick Brattel's score, I thought was one of the best I've heard in years. The score was so good. Was like mm. profoundly, you know, affecting, definitely. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. The score was really important for me. I didn't really get into this film as much as you, Andy, I don't think, at all. There were a couple of things that I really loved and admired about it, um, and that includes the way that it was told, so the nonlinear fashion, the kind of skipping back and forth between, you know, so-called present time and then the, the past, you know, retelling the way that uh, Fonny and Tish fell in love and, you know, their kind of early time together um, and then cutting back like that. I feel like Jenkins handled that back and forth really well and I feel like it was important to the way we kind of responded to the injustice of what was happening to Fonny when we saw the way that not only um, the two of them had spent time together but the way that he had spent time with his family and her family and everything like that. So I thought that the handling of the time frames was was really strong and I guess maybe that's the reason why I felt most connected to and most 
uh, appreciative of the time that the two of them were together that we saw on screen. Like I thought them wandering through the city and the way that the like frame seemed to only capture them, like everything else in the frame was basically ignored. We didn't care about anyone else when the the two of them were on screen because it was just, they were so perfect together and like so luminous. And I felt like the cutting, you know, the two of them kind of as a love story, this was really an incredible film. And had the same, I guess, emotional kind of resonance as Moonlight in the attention to the people. But it was the other scenes that didn't work quite so well. I thought there was a little bit too much generic melodrama called upon in those scenes, particularly the family fighting scenes um, and some of the society portrait scenes that made them less powerful than the scenes with just the two of them together as lovers and as emotionally connected. Right. Like he was drawing on like too many, I guess, kind of long bows of how life might have been back then. And that, that, that kind of weakened the film for me slightly. I don't know. Interesting. I think I agree with Andy here. In the, uh, To me, it really grabbed me from the opening and didn't let go. I, and it was really interesting in the way it did that because a lot of the romance scenes are very sort of languorous you know, slow. Like, he takes his time unfolding this plot. I think towards the end, uh, things happen a bit more quickly. Uh, And he combines it with this sort of visual style which really luxuriates in these characters. And, I mean, he does this great thing with conversations where the camera will just sort of slowly pan around a group of people and then it will go to these amazing sort of head-on shots of these two central lovers looking, stealing slow-motion glances at each other which is quite similar to a technique that he deployed in Moonlight and I just loved how he found those little moments of intimacy um, right through to connecting them to these these broader you know issues of structural and endemic racism and it all felt of a piece to me um, I, to me it, it all sort of worked as, as one sort of interesting continuum and um, yeah I'm still very much thinking about it it really did resonate with me um, up until perhaps the final moments where the narrative sort of really took over and we needed to sort of wrap things up and it became a bit less uh, compelling to me but on the whole I think I was really floored by this Yeah, film. I feel like every single technical aspect of this was so, so beautifully done. It felt, as soon as I sat down, I felt like this is so, it, it just feels like we're being carried. He's so caring, so nurturing. It has so much affection and intention behind everything that he does. These characters are so key and so important to him and there's so much going on behind them so that as much as he loves them and wants to frame them in this slightly soft focus with a bit of a filter perhaps to it with Brittell's score kind of circling, the camera constantly moving, that you're just so sure that he knows what he's doing and that mm. using Baldwin's book as a basis, which I think might be why some of the stuff seems a bit cliche, Ello, is that this was written you know, back in the 70s. I don't Perhaps think this it's stuff cliche. Has been used again. I don't think it's cliche. Can you That's explain not what you meant I before, think. Earlier? I think that, like, uh, I mean, Jenkins is dealing with um, kind of melodramatic techniques and he knows that. I mean, so much of the aesthetics of this is, is all, mm. you know, kind of dealing with the machinations of melodrama, which is beautiful. I just feel like... The, the stuff that we get when we focus on the two of them is is gorgeous. Um, it's so gorgeous and it's so emotionally kind of affecting and engaging. And the stuff that happens 
you know, with the family or, you know, the stuff that seems kind of like less perfect or when the the stuff outside of the two of them falling in love that is trying to deal with the the wounds that uh, exist between African-American culture and the rest of America, shall we say. Um, although I will say that I feel like the, the references to other cultures like Jewish people, Puerto Ricans was all really interesting and I really appreciated that that stuff, those kind of complications were inserted into the, the narrative. Mm. But I just feel like they were buried in the structure of the film. The film opens with a quote from James Baldwin where he says, Beale Street is where I grew up in New Orleans. Every African-American in America lives on Beale Street. Everyone comes from Beale Street. Every city has its own Beale Street. And so in a way the film is trying to say this is a specific story but it's also it's everyone's story so it's not specific but it is specific to everyone. And so, I mean, maybe that is what was trying to do. I just felt like a lot of the stuff that I really wanted from this film was missing and I don't think it balanced this idea between like a personal kind of persecution and um, societal racial persecution as well as it did in, in something like Moonlight. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, I felt like it was really taken inside and like as a viewer, you're put right, you're so empathetic. There's so much, so many people looking directly into the camera in this film, mm. particularly there's a sequence with Regina King looking in a mirror trying to make herself up in Puerto Rico. She was amazing. Yeah, she's yeah. remarkable. Yeah. There was a but, scene, sorry Andy, you go. Oh, I was just going to say in this sort of personal way, this in, emotional introduction into this world is perfect mm. for somebody who has no experience of it, like me at least. So I did feel that I was put inside this sort of institutional racism and seeing how naturally it was woven into every interaction so that when you get Fonny's friend who's just come out of jail for stealing a car even though he doesn't know how to drive, um, you kind of feel like, yeah. Now that was an amazing scene. That was a beautiful scene, yeah. And Um, and the way that it was just so matter-of-factly told. And the way that that interaction sort of descended from... Uh, so he he's so we don't realise that he's straight out of prison as soon as he they run into each other and then sort of this becomes obvious. Um, and they he goes back to their place for for drinks and dinner and they're sort of talking and having fun and then he gets sort of serious and mm. he just mentions uh, or alludes to you know um, his experience in prison and just it's quite an extraordinary moment and then suddenly you're back. They're back laughing and drinking. Yeah, so I thought like there is so much repression going on here. It's reflected in the score so beautifully that there's this constant burbling and bubbling of of, of strings and and sax and this sort of jazz stuff that's happening, but muted almost like it's underwater. So there's so much personal and and, uh, public censoring going on by these characters that it's... In the book, I was reading a review that said in the book, in that particular scene, or in that scene, or, you know, it's revealed at some point that Daniel reveals that, um, you know, this particular thing that he's alluding to that happened in prison was that he was gang raped and that that was um, taken out of the film, you know. And I don't think it's a loss that it's not in the film, that particular thing, no, because you I, do get the yeah, understanding get that, that, yeah, that what, he's, yeah. what he's experienced is unspeakable. I mean, which is part of melodrama, right, where there are things that are too awful, they're unspeakable, so they have to be kind of like redirected into the score, Andy, or whatever. Yeah, okay. Because mm. there is also throughout illusions and shots of funny sculpting out of wood. And this was kind of like something. <laughs> and he's smiling. Well, I, this is the part where I, I felt like um, Jenkins was like going, just to make sure you know, this is how creative he is, and this is how he's making these kind of crude things. But also, when this he is ex- how much that we're meant to believe that he would never sexually assault someone. Because no, because he, he's a sen- he's an extremely he's a sensitive, sensitive man, and he listens yeah. sensitively when his friends allude to. 
horrible yeah. times in prison. But yeah. also when he exhales smoke, no one in the history of cinema has exhaled, exhaled as much smoke <laughs> as, hap- as happens in this particular scene when the camera just, yes. just goes for another loop around the sculpture. Mm. Yeah, that's all the smoke hanging in the, hanging in the air. I mean, I, I don't mind it, but there was, that was a bit I where I was like, okay, no, this, this is beautiful. very beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> also, like completely, we're almost moving off into some sort of other territory here. Um, the only other time I was taken out of the movie was when A. Franco showed up. Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, it's yes, a Franco. Same. Which one is it? It's not, no, it's not, no, is it Dave? I think it's Dave. I'm not sure. But yeah. I was just like, all I could think of was like. Yeah, Dave Franco did. Frank, Dave Franco I was like, oh, up. God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. otherwise these actors are phenomenal, but they're also almost entirely unknown to me. The guy who played Fonny's dad. And in fact, Tish's dad, they were both incredible. This, yes. And the, the two of them were just these, in, like the fact that they had this relationship and the way that they responded to the events of the film yeah. was kind of like so, so important and that they just had this great rapport. Brilliant actors, yeah. the two of them. See, yeah, yeah. that's I think that's just something you, you might have had a problem with the, the scene where the, toward the beginning where the two families meet to discuss. Yeah, see that in I felt in the hands of almost any other director on the planet would have become a bit too stagey and a bit too like we're in a theatre set now. Yeah. But I felt the, the way that they communicated, there was so much subliminal, subtle beginnings of sentences, gestures, where you felt like this family would understand a lot more mm. by these subtle way, ways of communication. And in a lot of hands, that would shut out a viewer like us who isn't familiar and doesn't have their backstory. But for some reason, I can't put my finger on, Jenkins does this thing where emotionally you kind of know exactly what's going on and nobody's really saying anything. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought that was quite funny. It was, so strange. it was kind of, I guess it was a strange tonal shift between the the scene of with the lovers and the scenes with the family like that scene was great and definitely directed like extraordinarily well it went for a long time i thought which seemed very odd if you put it up against the other things that were happening in the film Mm -hmm. um and yeah it kind of stands out i don't know a bit like a sore thumb in a in a weird way the pace is very interesting Mm. because when this happens and he gets um, when we find out that he's been arrested it's it felt like it was about an hour into the film or maybe not quite but it was a mm. long time into the film we were well beyond where you would normally get that kind of a mm. revelation yeah um yeah. Which I found not interesting. when you find out he's arrested, right? I mean, you know that already, but find out how. Oh, sorry, yeah, he's and become. what? Sorry, yeah, what he's been. Yeah, I mean, I think that yeah, was yeah, interesting true. because you you kind of I guess we we know. We know ultimately what he's been charged with, even though because we know he's not guilty, and so we can make our assumptions about maybe what's most likely. I don't know. I mean, that's like quite powerful. In the same way that when when Tish comes to see him towards the end of the film and she sees he's been beaten up quite badly, yeah, yeah. there's mm. never any discussion of what happened in mm. the prison because mm. you you know the point of the details is is irrelevant. And I mean, also you don't. Like, you know, the director quite clearly doesn't want to make Fonny into a bad guy, so doesn't want to suggest that he might have provoked anyone or fought back even at all or anything. So, yeah, but I think it's all the more powerful for having that. Oh, no, it's very powerful. It's like saying when Brian Tyree Henry's. Daniel turns up and yeah, no, I I, I really appreciate that it didn't didn't go into that that Mm. detail. Just a quick shout out those actors of the dads it's Coleman Domingo and Michael Beach. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah, I mean, it's still, uh, you know, it's up for Oscars. Regina King's the front runner to win Best Supporting Actress. Oh, she should. Yeah. I mean, I don't know who else and is I'm, up for it, but, but like, yeah. <laughs> she should, yeah. Two of the favourites. Um, oh, like okay. Rachel Weiss and Emma Stone and Amy Adams. I mean, Ra- I, Rachel Weiss is also allowed to win. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm, I'm surprised there aren't more people getting excited about this. I mean, I do feel like it's of a par with Moonlight. This, that so much. I know, but see, Jenkins has said that he they purposely didn't campaign for an Oscar. 
So that's why. Right. Okay. If you want to be cynical, which I, I am. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, he, the next thing we'll see him is doing is the Underground Railroad TV series. Oh, Which really? I think is a perfect match. <gasps> oh, my somebody. God. I read that. That was an incredible book. Yeah. It's in pre-production at the moment. Okay, so I think right. it's out late this year or next year. You wouldn't have the time, I suppose, miss. I'm Miranda, your pretty little diamond watch. Don't wear it anymore. Can't stand it ticking above my heart. Uh. (laughs) If it were mine, I'd wear it always. Even in the bar. (laughs) Would you, Mr. Hussey? And that was a clip from Christian Markley's 24-hour film project, The Clock. Thankfully, we have with us one of the country's foremost experts on The Clock, <laughs> Cultural Capital's very own Eloise Ross. Elo, could you please tell the listeners why that clip and another 23 hours and 59 minutes and 30 seconds is so exciting <laughs> and worth our time? Uh, oh, boy, can I? Uh, I don't know. So Christian Markley's The Clock is maybe one of my favourite, uh, one of the most famous and I suppose prominent examples of contemporary like audiovisual remix culture kind of post-production culture um, where an artist or a filmmaker however they might describe themselves will take clips um, or segments from other films and in whatever way thematic or otherwise they choose re-edit them into some particular sequence Um, and the clock is I mean certainly one of the most I guess ambitious examples of this this is thousands and thousands of clips edited together so it's an enormous project you you know you kind of get into this sense of being lulled into it some kind of narrative that may or may not be there or at least a series of micro narratives by this constant editing that occurs editing both within the clips that are chosen and also in the wider structure of the clock so as a as audience members maybe we're, we're carried along we kind of move along with the pace Mm-hmm. Um, of this certain thing. I mean, there's that kind of thing. So it's like an experiment with time and duration and editing. And also it's this really fun kind of cinematic edi- yeah. identification yeah. game where you're like, oh, I know that movie. And then um, that's really fun as well. Anyway, mm. I'm uh, obsessed with this <laughs> uh, a lot. <laughs> yeah, okay. And I think you guys are too. Yeah, very much so. I've only seen – I've seen from about – 9 p.m. to 1.30-ish a.m. And I'm now dying to see it um, in the morning. Oh, I told Anders to stay until 2.30. I just Between 2 a.m. and 3 a.m., you might not think, is exciting, but it's just such an exciting time. (laughs) (laughs) And then at 3 a.m. it gets a little dull. The editing slows down. But, yeah, you couldn't quite make it. Anyway. Well, I know, but this thing about the editing is really interesting because I – it does really interesting things to your sense of time um, because it felt like when I was watching this, it felt like particularly when it approached midnight, the speed and number of clips really sped up yeah, and then yeah. they slowly sort of fade away again and you get like a lot of shots of clocks at like on the hour kind of thing and then it just sort of slows down. So it makes, I mean, it turns time into this less of a linear thing and more of this sort of ebbing and flowing. All this yeah, I like. find that really interesting you use the word lulls earlier yeah. because sometimes I would totally agree, but other times I felt it was like this constant tension. Yeah. People waiting for stuff, people who never arrived, there were bombs counting down to being exploded but then would never explode. There was all this mounting tension 
Um, and then, except for when you get after an hour, and I noticed, I mean, I think I've seen what thirteen hours or something. And after an hour, there's people always waiting for people who haven't shown up yet. So there's right. a bit of like this, like this. Sometimes you'll get a little release. Sometimes you get people recurring. Or, yeah. You know, who'll turn up, or a clip will disappear for a few minutes, and you'll get a yes. Someone. I mean, in when I watched it uh, from about ten to one ish, Joan Crawford kept I kept on coming <laughs> back to Joan Crawford, waiting for someone. Yeah. And it was so delightful that there were all these little sort of in jokes or little. Well, not not even jokes, but like little references, little stories that play narratives that play out within this concept. It's so much more than just arbitrary shots of clocks. Yeah, yeah, um, it really is. Which yeah, I think is very important that's what's really kind of key to think about. You know, some people who may or may not be interested in seeing this will kind of hear about the concept and think there might only be one example of any time from anything and that it's just it's just collected by Mark Lane. He puts it in. But you can tell that he really – I mean, I've seen this a lot and I've seen a lot of the movies in it a lot. Not all of them by any means, but, you know, some of them I have written on in my thesis and for other reasons. And there are places – where you're right – where he'll make a little in-joke or he'll put another clip in for a specific reason to kind of call back to something else. But there are there are movies in there, for instance, Vincent Minnelli's The Clock from 1945, where he'll have a clip from just after midnight, but there are other – I mean, that's a, that's a movie that's a 24-hour kind of – that takes place over 24 hours. And so there are lots of references to time in that movie, but he only uses one, maybe two of them, like not yeah. all of them. So you can tell that he's really being very specific about – what he chooses at certain times and that's really cool that is cool one uh, other thing I, I really want to shout out has been cool was um uh there was these sh- scenes from i don't know the film but it's jean-pierre leo um and he's like whining and dining a female companion and you see him leave to make a phone call if i recall correctly so he leaves her at the table at this restaurant and then we, that happens, and then like we cut to other clips, mm. and because my, this is all in real time, Mark Lay then returns to the film at the time when he returns to this woman at mm. the table, and it was a good twenty-five minutes <laughs> later, and it was really like the way he spread out something that in the film would have taken like you know two seconds or maybe another scene and then we cut back to him returning instead he drew that out of 25 minutes and yeah. it was amazing and I thought my god he left her, that poor woman at, at the table for 25 minutes or I love that he breaks up this elliptical editing yeah exactly like as, as well something I hadn't realised I saw it the other day and watched it for the whole day and I think at about 11 and I've seen Wendy and Lucy the Kelly Rackhart film quite a few times because I have taught it in the past and so she goes into a she gets taken into a police station for stealing a can of dog food and I think at around 11 a.m. there's a, a clip of her in the police station um, and then at around 3 p.m. or something there's another clip and I remember thinking what like this is fuck a fuck up and then I was like oh yeah in the movie she's waiting the whole day that's why she loses her dog and then it kind of made me remember like shit that's a really long time it's a long time because of course the movie is only 80 minutes and so even though it suggests that things take a long time you don't get that sense like it's really interesting in the way that like it it plays with cinematic duration because cinema i mean not in every kind of sense but mainstream cinema is all about compressing time and this is not this is about undoing that yeah. Yeah. One thing I'm surprised we haven't talked about yet is the sound design because there's so much joy, there's so much playfulness going on mm. with the sound design and the overlapping of one sound from one clip into another, or precursing a edit with the 
by introducing the sound from that clip. Yep. Did you explore that much when you were writing about it? Because you've written about this quite a lot. So through a few much. Different places. Yeah. yeah, I wrote about it in my thesis. In fact, that was one of the reasons why I became so obsessed. But I wrote a piece for the Acme blog um, recently, you know, for their current screening of the, the, um, the clock and kind of talked about how sound is really interesting and, you know, uh, in the same way that, you know, a, a door might open in a particular film and open onto a film from four decades later like a pop music might play on a radio from the 1930s kind of thing yeah. um, mm, mm-hmm. you know because they'll turn it on and it will be um, there'll be like the sound bridge from before so he's really doing that the sound designer on the clock was this guy named Quentin Chapetta. three years in the making I think or something two or three yeah mm. yeah um, but yeah. he had I think maybe six kind of interns like scanning hundreds and hundreds of movies and stuff getting getting times and mm. noting them down um before before he compiled them um but the, yeah the music is really interesting in the way that you know there'll be sound matches from one telephone ring to another yeah, yeah so many com- phone conversations yeah. <laughs> yeah or gunshots going from one scene and people reacting in another scene and that yeah, sort of stuff. yeah 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 alarm clocks going off you yes. know things like that i noticed one recurring motif is the um uh the black um a bedside table alarm clock with the red uh, oh, number. Yeah, yeah. You know, that it's so many shots of yeah. that at around midnight, like so many. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just really loved how it was the slightly voyeuristic too aspect to you, particularly just going back to that time from about 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. All of the stuff, the repeated ways that people spend that time. You have people, you know, driving alone at night. You have people drinking martinis in glamorous bars. You have people making cups of tea in their lounge rooms. Mm. You have people going to sleep. You have people having sex. You have people phoning people. Like, it was just like a really... There was something weirdly affirming in watching all (laughs) of this, like, human behaviour happening. Mm. It really is. Like, when you watch a movie, you might watch it at any time of day and you go out and the day is happening um, independently of this viewing experience that you've had. But I really found when I've seen the clock, like, when I was in San Francisco, I left at 5.45 a.m., and I walked through the streets and saw these like some street cleaners around and people opening their shops and things. And I thought, shit, that was just happening on screen where, where I just came from. And, and I clicked to me that the film, the clock is actually like it's kind of real life. Um, and so it's really fascinating the way that it reshapes, you know, is it, an, is it art or is it a movie? And I mean, I don't know what the answer is, but it kind of shifts what a movie can be, right? Like, yeah, yeah, I find the way that it plays, it triggers your memory in this way that you've almost constantly got dementia. Yeah. Like this, like, oh, I know that person, but where from? Hang on. Oh, no, that's already gone now. I mean, is that fact? Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know, with you at least, I'm sure you'd be able to spot a lot more. But I was spotting But maybe, not all of them. No, of not, course, not no. Be, almost yeah. nobody could. But yeah. I was getting maybe like one in every 30, maybe 40. I was like going, oh, I know that film. Or I mean, does that kind of diminish the, the pleasure for you? Not at all. You? It's a thrill. Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. But also it does, yeah, because every so often you'll go like, oh, my God, yeah. Or you'll get a lengthy scene like the one from mm. Pulp Fiction or from High Noon or something. I mean, there were there were quite a few James Bonds too. In my there were so time. many James Bonds for the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Too many, I would <laughs> say. Too many James okay. Bonds. Interesting. Too many clips. And I know that there are lots of clocks in this for obvious reasons, but too many <laughs> clips of the time machine. Also, I think... Big Ben explodes explode yeah. on like pretty I did much feel every like, hour I, I love that though. I know. I, love I feel like <laughs> 10% of the clock is Big Ben. Yeah. <laughs> so many. Yeah. I mean, I didn't spot the its use in The Parent Trap, but I think that was the only time I can oh. remember seeing Big Ben in a movie that which wasn't included in the clock. 
um, Melbourne listeners can see the clock uh, between 10 a.m. and 5 p.m. Uh, the Acme, except on Thursday nights when you get the whole 24-hour experience. That's right, and you should. I'd throw until March 10th. Thank you. Um, speaking of uh, just things that are happening in Melbourne and really exciting right now in terms of this whole like post-production movie art type of thing, I just wanted to give a shout-out to this piece of art called Rearview by Anna Brecon and Nat Randall, which is uh, on d- display at Acker right now until March 24th, I think. It's part of this exhibition called The Theatre is Lying with like four or five art pieces. In, um, and I went to see it today and it's this 85-minute film um, that you can see in a gallery space. It's free entry as well. But it's basically a road movie with these two actors um, in the car and it's a rear screen projection and they're just sitting there and the camera is looking at them front on and so you can see what's behind them as they're driving. They're just driving on a mostly straight road and having a conversation and I hadn't known what it was but I forgot and then when I got in I kind of you know came to realise slowly that it's a, a road movie and the dialogue between the two of them is basically just dialogue taken from a number of movies of um, people driving in cars oh, <laughs> um, cool, right. and so it's cool. kind of like you can see it as one story and that they're just two characters but you will see them they'll flip identities here and there and they'll you know it's they'll, they'll take one of them will be um so it's two women and occasionally one of them will kind of role play the man and then the other one will role play the man in the conversation or sometimes it's two women and you see them just you know go through these number of identities but they're just reciting dialogue from other movies basically um it's super fun and there were people who stayed 10 minutes but we watched the whole thing and um really loved it and it's playing on loop um at Acker until march 25th 24th i think it's i mean it's not the same thing as the clock but i really find it really interesting that there are a lot of these projects these days that are trying to repurpose history into a new thing to kind of play with what cinema has taught us you know duration or narrative character kind of like coherence um that kind of thing cool i'm gonna check that out you really should yeah yeah Yeah, i'm gonna go back cool Which brings us to this episode's Cultural Capital Film Diary. The Transitions Film Festival showcases documentaries about social innovations and technological ideas that runs from February 21 until March 8 at Cinema Nova. Highlights include Charged, a film about chef and adventurer Eduardo Garcia, whose life changed after he was shocked with 2,400 volts of electricity. A documentary about the Italian refugee crisis, It Will Be Chaos, and The Guardians, which examines the Mexican monarch butterfly biosphere. Go to transitionsfilmfestival.com for more information. The Young at Heart Film Festival runs until February 27 at Palace Cinemas. Highlights include screenings of Louis Bunuel's 1967 film Belle de Jour. I love that that's in the Young at Heart, um, by the (laughs) way. Just need to interject. Yeah, so do I. Uh, The documentary Older Than Ireland, which combines candid interviews with 30 Islanders who were born before 1916. And the Australian premiere of Sunset Over Mulholland Drive, about the motion picture and television fund established by Mary Pickford and Charlie Chaplin to support actors and film industry workers who fell on hard times. Interviewees include actress Connie Sawyer and producer Daniel Selznick. Find out more at youngatheart.net.au. The Astor Theatre is screening a 4K restoration of Superman, the movie, from February 21 to 24. A double bill of The King of Comedy and To Die For that could be a good backgrounder for Joaquin Phoenix's 2019 film The Joker, which is apparently borrowing inspiration from these films. 
Finally, as part of the Melbourne Fashion Film Festival, there's also a very rare opportunity to see Kenneth Anger's Magic Lantern Cycle. Yes. I've got my tickets to that. So good. When is it, Andy? Tell us the details. Well, first of all, I'm going to tell listeners what it is, and that's a compilation of nine short films that have had an immeasurable impact on fashion film design and most of the successful directors in the last 50 years, and that's happening on March 8th. I'll see you there. Great. Over at Acme, Sari Braithwaite's film Censored, a 63-minute film comprised of footage stitched together from bits cut out of other films by Australian Censorship Office from 1958 to 1971, is screening on March 2nd. With a one of the most interesting films I saw yeah. at MIF last year, just want to say. Yeah, yeah, we thoroughly um, endorse uh, Censored, and that's got a live score by The End and Munro Milano. And the Melbourne Women in Film Festival runs from February 21 to 24, showcasing a collection of short films and features made by and starring Australian women, including Susan Lambert's 1984 sci-fi drama On Guard and Margaret Dodd's exploration of female objectification, autoerotica and Australian masculinity, This Woman Is Not A Car. Eloise, what's happening over at Melbourne Cinematheque? The Melbourne Cinematheque, we are still profiling the work of Selan, Nubil Selan, the Turkish filmmaker. Have a couple more weeks left of his work, which is really exciting. And coming up after that, uh, starting on March 6, is a three-week season titled Old Weird Albion, British Supernatural and Gothic Horror Cinema of the 1950s to 1970s. Cool. Which I'm really that excited about. Intriguing. Starting with Robert Wise's The Haunting on 35mm. If you've never seen that, you need to see that right now or on March 6th at 7pm at Acme. <laughs> cool. Um, whichever you like. Um, and Night of the Demon by Jacques Tenner, which I just think is an incredible film. Anyway, I'm really, really pumped for that season. I found something. Who did these? The mesmeric. A uh, guy upstairs, he died. And you just took them? He had no family or friends. I can make you rich. Brilliant. Demand has people ready to kill. Have you ever heard of an artist named Ventral Deeds? No, not in our records, and we have everyone. The artist used blood to create the reddish blocks. You ever notice anything about this painting? Look at it long enough, it moves. Dan Gilroy reunites with Jake Gyllenhaal and Rene Rousseau after 2014's dark neo-noir satire Nightcrawler with Velvet Buzzsaw, a Netflix production where the director returns to Los Angeles after last year's Roman J. Israel Esquire, which scrutinised the LA criminal court system. Um, Los Angeles is a bit of a theme here. Velvet Buzzsaw is an art scene satirical horror and a mash of ideas and genres that doesn't obey any rules and doesn't care. Gyllenhaal plays Morph Vandervolt, the city's major art critic who can make or destroy someone's career. And Russo and Tony Collette play sparring gallery owners who are custodians of taste. Zawe Ashton plays Josephina, ruthlessly making her way up the art world food chain in a terrific role who maybe sums up the world that it is that is being critiqued here. Jesus, what's the point of art if nobody sees it? In some ways, this film is all surface style over substance but in other ways it's an incredibly perceptive challenge to the world it's critiquing and to cinema itself in the current climate frustrated artist john malkovich puts it this way ideas come but they kill themselves as soon as they appear this is a slaughterhouse what exactly is gilroy talking about and is <laughs> this is a slaughterhouse interesting uh, what is he talking about? I'm not quite sure. I I thought it was 
fine, although your introductions caused me to reconsider it maybe in a more <laughs> positive light. To me, it was very ephemeral. It sort of came and went. It's undemanding. I don't know. On one level, the satire is all very surface level and done before. Do we really need more jokes about people mistaking literal bags of rubbish for works of art. <laughs> Maybe we do. Um, but I, I, all of that stuff, and there's a lot of it in the film, like it's got this really interesting tone, which I I began to get bored by or dulled by until the horror, the horror element sort of come in towards the end. I mean, It comes in quite late, isn't it? But yeah. Yeah, and yeah. when that happens, then I was really into it. But even then, I thought the most interesting parts of those death scenes, so basically... It follows these um, the, this sort of buzzy collection of art from a dead um, artist who's been rediscovered um, where randomly, you know, stumbled upon and everyone says these works are masterful and works of a genius, but the works of art actually are going one by one, killing people. Um, and I thought conceptually those deaths were really interesting and even if they ultimately left the good bits to your imagination except for the really great there's a fabulous moment with like graffiti and street art like slipping off the walls of a gallery Mm. and essentially drowning a character in like this kaleidoscopic weird um thing that was really super cool so there were there was like brief flashes of brilliance but overall it's a it was just it didn't quite do it for me what did you yeah i found the tones and shifts a bit strange i mean there was a weird campiness, I suppose, to it. There was just an sh- amount of fun, I guess, that Garo was having with this. Mm. A f- kind of lightness in a way that I never felt with, with Nightcrawler. I loved Nightcrawler. I think it was incredible, but I would never describe it as fun or that he no, was... No, very different. Tonally. No, very, very different tonally, yeah. yeah. Um, this one I just kind of left me a bit cold. I kind of liked the ideas he was playing around with, but I didn't feel that was particularly edgy or new or exciting. Even if visually there was a fair, like you were saying, a fair bit of flair here and there. But ultimately it got a bit too Final Destination for me, I suppose. I love Final well, Destination. Well, that's okay. Yeah, but it's also... But I think like, I prefer it to this. Yeah, well, none of the characters I could really engage with much to care about their demise. And he was obviously didn't care that much either about characterization. He was more like going, oh, you know, let's just, run, you, let's just take this... What did you think of Gyllenhaal's performance? Because he plays this sort of real quirky... This, uh, yeah, he kind of looks really... Critic. Like, consternated the whole time. Yes, yeah. <laughs> right? It's yeah, yeah. quite funny. Yeah, there's a, it well, is. Well, his self-doubt is an interesting use as a motivator, I think, which keeps recurring and expressing self Also, he's pleasingly naked in a few scenes. Yeah. Uh, and he's, yeah. Uh, he's a bisexual character, main character, which is very yeah, interesting. Yeah, but also, and there's, and there's whatever, he's kind of... Yeah, he's sort of like anything goes. Oh, no, but, no, but I mean, like, the fact that he's bisexual is not, not a point. It's just something that's oh, no, casually no, exactly. passing. It's not even mentioned, really. No. It's just, which, uh, yeah. yeah, he's good. He's always good, though. He's yeah, reliably he's, excellent. Yeah. But no, this like just kind no. of you know, like you were saying, it's a bit slight. I felt like it possibly could have been. I really, done in a different way. I mean, I yeah, I know where you guys are coming from, and I feel like it's you know perhaps this film is so surface that it really maybe isn't saying that much at all. And I'm so curious to go back and watch it again because I just feel like there's so so much happening here, and that there is. you know, I mean, like you remember when Southland Tales got released and. Um, Jay Hoberman said something like there's there's so much going on here this film can't concentrate but that was the reason why he kind of made it that one of the greatest films of of that year for him and I feel like maybe this film has the same potential like I really enjoyed it and I feel like that the tonal shifts are incredible and this film just knows what it's doing in terms of being a satire in terms of using giallo tropes in terms of like 
playing to like this need that we all have for everything to look so fucking good all of the time and then being like, I suck it, like oh, I got you kind of thing. Like there's a lot going on here and I really enjoyed it. And it's so over the top. I was thinking about Neon Demon, which I fucking hated. I was just oh. thinking about Neon Demon when for you mentioned that. Thank you yes. for reminding me about Neon Demon. Yes. I love Not Neon for the same Demon. reason. I hated it. I was I so bored it by it. Yes. I was bored by its... Mm. Um, <laughs> artifice so and I was bored by its excess whereas yeah. this I find like so entertaining interesting and I don't I'm not at a point where I know how to understand why those things are happening but I think that this has more humor and this film takes itself less seriously and in that regard can be more successful than Neon Demon which well, I hate. one thing I think it might be part of what you're trying to answer mm. is the fact that a movie like Neon Demon is so just boldly stylish and goes here's a massive bit of fluoro neon purple yeah. deal with it and in this one the actual art that's causing people to react so strangely is a strange mix of mm. styles there's not one particular style it's all this kind of yeah. stuff which I thought was actually a really great move was like it isn't like somebody's just reinvented art with this particular use of form or you know context or whatever it's actually this whole bunch of different things where it's kind of like slightly smudgy sort of um sort of stuff and then sometimes you get a, it's a bit picasso sometimes it's a bit landscapey and a bit more t- turnerish there's all these different styles going on in there and i thought that was a really nice mix but then also the fact that he's playing this as a satire but then also there's like literal chemists trying to work out why there's like actual dna of the artist in the pieces of of, of oh, yeah, art it's right. like this <laughs> like you were saying the yellow sort of stuff that's kind of getting into it yeah i thought that was kind of funny yeah like it's kind of weirdly sci-fi in a way and yeah but just it just kind of brings it in doesn't do anything with it it just kind of goes back to the but i mean there's something really great about that in this regard i I don't know. Interesting. There were, just speaking of surface level, there were some beautiful uh, and quite sort of nightmarish shots of LA. Yes. I was about to mention that actually. Yeah. And uh, all that kind of stuff, which I really dig. He explores in Nightcrawler. He does that as well. Like, so. Definitely. So much. And so there's something. And I haven't seen um, Roman J. Israel Esquire, but. Perhaps that does the same it's thing. It's interesting that it's so fascinated with LA. Yeah, Dan, what is it? Give I us a call. Too. Give oh, us a call. Yeah, We'd love to know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, I yeah, I just, I really enjoyed this movie and I feel like maybe, I, I mean, I gave myself over to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Quite clearly because from the opening credits, I really enjoyed the, the artifice that it was engaging in and thought, yeah, okay, I'm into it. Um, also, the hobo robot art piece thing was kind of creepy. Mm. So creepy. Look, I didn't love all of it. I, I do have to say that, yeah. but I just am getting very into like talking excitedly about it right now. So yeah. well, <laughs> good for you. Yeah, yeah I'd, I'd recommend it. Mm. It's on Netflix. Something truly goddamn strange is going on. And that brings us to the end of episode 59. Thank you for, very much for listening. You can get extra thanks from us by throwing us some stars our way on iTunes. That would be great. Rate, review, retweet. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Cultural Capital Podcast. We're on Twitter at The Cult Cap Pod. And you can find me at Andy Ricky. I'm at Anders Furs. And I'm at Eloise Low Ross. We think you're great. Mm-hmm.